Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel live stream. It's all a blessing to share God's Word with you. It's a, a privilege and an honor, and uh, hope you are blessed in the Lord today. We're going to be in James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your blessings to us all, that you are with us, you never leave or forsake us, that whether we're in Sydney or across the world, Lord, you know us, you have uh, gone before us, you are our protector, our provider, our deliverer, our, our awesome King and Lord. And we worship you, Father. We thank you for uh, the blessings that you do lavish upon us, for your grace, for your wisdom, for your humility in coming to earth and in humbling yourself and giving us that example. And may we walk in those ways. May we follow Jesus in faith, trusting you, believing all that you have promised and growing in grace, growing in the knowledge of God and choosing to obey you uh, and, and putting aside the wisdom of the world, putting aside even our feelings or our own thoughts so that we might adopt yours as ours as you live through us. Thank you, Lord, again for your provision. We pray for those who are struggling, for those who are feeling alone. Uh, Lord, may they sense your presence today. May you draw near to them as they draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The wisdom of the world, it's so different than the wisdom of God, the wisdom seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And the, his, his greatness, his wisdom, it really can't be experienced or valued unless you first know God. And having a knowledge of God, that gives us insight into recognizing how awesome he is, how, how different the, he is from the, I guess, the role models of the world. The people, look, people in the world look at the famous, the rich, and the powerful as a role model because they've achieved success that other people want. And I did an online search to see what values companies and corporations preach and uh, embrace to benefit both employees and consumers, and hundreds of values out there, and there was one that I did not find, uh, meekness. To be meek, it's to be gentle, to show forbearance under provocation. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and if you want blessing from God, God puts a blessing upon those who are meek, those who are humble. And the reason why meekness is not touted by businesses, well, one of them, it's, it comes from God alone, that it can't be taught through a module. It can't be adopted by willpower or by trying. It's by being born again, by knowing God and having the presence of the Holy Spirit within you that we are able to walk in God's ways, to walk in the wisdom of meekness. And we might wonder, well, how is meekness profitable in a dog-eat-dog world? How can meekness help me land that promotion or earn more money or benefit us in any way? And if that's where our mind goes when we think about meekness, it may be that you're valuing the wisdom of the world over godliness and the wisdom from God. And isn't God the source of all good things? And don't we want his blessing? So to, to recognize, yeah, meekness is something I desire, and I'm going to take steps in my life to, to lay aside the pride and the ambition and seek to be meek as Christ is. So this book, James, it's written to Christians who needed correction. They needed guidance from God. 
And he goes through the book saying, showing that it's inconsistent to say we have saving faith in Jesus without a change of heart, without a change of life. And he addressed Christians, James did, of things that they needed to realize are sinful so that they could repent of. Because there's so much of our lives that are, we, we walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the world and we come to Christ and we're born again but we still have attitudes and um, tendencies that are sinful, that are not godly. And people had faith, they claimed to have faith, where he says, that's not profiting you at all. And if it's not changing your life, then how could it save your soul? And so this book of James really moves us to examine ourselves, those who are in the faith, to actually walk in faith, to have those good works that go along with being redeemed and born again. So James isn't ambiguous. He, he speaks specifically against having faith with partiality, how favoritism is contrary to God's love and grace, and he showed faith without works is dead. And words, they're not a substitute for good works, that if we have genuine faith, there will be good works along with them. And in this chapter, the emphasis is on the words that we say, how we say them, why we say them, and how we say them. Those things matter. And he comes alongside us like a, an older brother who's not uh, bombastic and arrogant, but one who's compassionate, one who is meek, who seeks restoration in the health of the body, the body of Christ. A patient often must be told that they have a serious illness before they will take significant steps to change their lifestyle or seek treatment. And James is really bold to provide some useful illustrations to show us, hey, we need to deal with the way that we speak and to consider, are we speaking with the meekness of wisdom? James 3, starting in verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Do you love those stories where someone begins work in a company at an entry-level minimum wage job, works their way up to be the CEO of the corporation? I like those stories. And people are ambitious. They want to be moving up. They want to see themselves progressing. Hey, we all like a raise, right? We, we want to be, uh, if we're in school, we want our good marks to be, be in the top. We want recognition for our efforts. And like people who aim to climb the social or the corporate ladder, James says we can do this in regards in spiritual things seeing teaching or preaching as the pinnacle of spiritual success, where you see someone preaching and go, I want to do that. That's what I have my sights set on. And James, he could have given a lot of reasons for why that was unwise, but he says one reason why this ambition to teach is to be avoided is because teachers will receive stricter judgment. God holds accountable those who teach his word to obey it themselves, to live in subjection to it. And this aligns with the principle Jesus taught in Luke 12, 48, that to whom much is given, much will be required. In the parable, Jesus told a servant was given a talent from his master, 
The master went away on a long journey, and when he returned, he, he settled accounts with that servant, and he required of him not only the talent, but all the proceeds from investing that talent. So, uh, knowing teachers are under strict judgment, they will give an answer for what they have said, also how they have lived, and what they have done with others. It's not a good justification to not teach if God's called you to do it, right? To, to shy away from teaching, to shy away taking a step of faith when God has called you or gifted you to teach because you're concerned about being judged, well, why, why not repent of the sin that you are aware of and choose to step out in faith? But what James is speaking against is uh, desiring, having some, desiring to teach, being ambitious toward that end, and thinking that that's what everyone is supposed to do. The reality is we all stumble in many things. Not one of us is perfect. And James includes himself. He says, we, we stumble. God knows in our walk with Jesus, we all stumble. There are times we make a foolish decision. We unwittingly teach unsound doctrine. We can fumble over our words. We can overlook key facts or doctrines. And we can be ignorant, even like Apollos was. He was a gifted speaker. He was well-versed in the Bible, but he didn't have accurate understanding of everything he needed to. In Acts 18, verse 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, and an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I mean, look at Apollos. He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent. He's speaking accurately. But as he is speaking in the synagogue, where that was an, kind of an open forum for people to teach and to share, and there were many people who wanted to be heard, he's speaking accurately, but he's incomplete. He doesn't know the grace of God. He doesn't actually preach the gospel. He was only instructed in the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they were a Christian Jewish couple with whom Paul, the apostle, apostle stayed for a season. They pull him aside after the synagogue meeting and they explain the way of Jesus more accurately. Now, Apollos, he received this instruction from them. He didn't receive it just because it was Paul who pulled him aside. No, Aquila and Priscilla, this godly couple, he didn't resist it. He didn't resent it. And note what happened next in Acts chapter 18, verse 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos was humble. He wasn't tooting his own horn, as you could say. He didn't say, well, I'm called by God to teach or I, I'm gifted to preach. It was the brethren who heard him, who saw his manner of life, who wrote letters of recommendation, who said, this guy, he's solid, he's faithful. He's greatly helped believers through grace and proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Real Christians, they're able to discern, um, like you don't have to be a preacher to know that someone's preaching the truth. 
because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And they were, they were recommending Apollos because he, he had, was growing in the grace of God. And he was greatly helping others and proclaiming Christ. And he's right on, receive him. Like when James wrote, today there's people who aspire to teach or who are teaching who should not teach until they submit to the Lord and have a good testimony of Christians who have heard them and seen their manner of life. And instead of making teaching others their aim, James says, we are best served to walk in humility. You know so much? Well, how about living it out? How about walking in wisdom? How about learning to hold your tongue before you feel like I need to share what what my insights are about something? Because uh, this bringing yourself under subjection, this isn't a claim of sinlessness or absolute perfection. It's, uh, we, because James said, we all stumble in many things. But the one who is able to reign in the tongue, that's someone that is fit to teach. The idea is that men must demonstrate ability to hold their tongues before they use them to teach. All people, especially those teaching, need to keep those reins in hand, and those who are able to control the things they say, they should also control their bodies, because the way that we speak, it controls or guides our lives and those around us. Spiritual maturity is not revealed by knowledge or the ability to preach, but by guiding our lives by God's wisdom. He continues this tack in James 3, verse 4. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Wow, pretty strong. The first illustration that James uses is the bit in the mouth of a horse, which allows a rider to guide an animal that weighs a ton. Ships, another example, a very small rudder can direct and guide the entire ship. A Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, uh, I looked into it, it weighs about 100,000 metric tons. The two rudders on it, They weigh 50 tons each, or 0.1% of the entire weight of the ship. So the same principle applies now that did back then. That little rudder, that piece of metal in the mouth of the horse with the reins, you are able to direct the whole uh, ship or the whole horse. A skilled sailor at the helm, he can avoid debris. He can bring bring the ship safely into port and guide those souls aboard to a place of rest and safety in the shelter of a bay. Large horses controlled by that bit, the ship by the rudder, the tongue, though small and concealed behind your teeth and lips, it can lead us and others to safety or to ruin. A madman driving a horse or a a ship puts himself and everyone else at danger because of his foolishness and careless decisions. The tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So the tongue, it has a lot of influence over our lives and the lives of others. It only takes a small spark in dry and windy conditions when there's fuel 
to start a huge bushfire that leads to the loss of life and property and livelihoods. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 16, 27, an ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It's like the world is full of sin manifested by the tongue, exposed and revealed by the things that we say. Think about all the ways that we can misuse our tongues. We can lie, slander, boast, brag, blaspheme, be deceitful, boast, curse. Our words can be proud, mocking, scornful, bitter, hateful, vengeful, arrogant, uh, selfish, unloving, without grace. It's basically a limitless list. It seems uh, there's so many ways our tongues can stir up wickedness. In one parable Jesus told, the master said, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. So because of the things he said, he was brought unto judgment. And it should be concerning to us that God will judge everything we say, whether you're preaching or not. We might look at the role of, of a preacher or someone who's teaching and saying, well, that person can't say anything wrong, but, but I have license to. No, God will bring every idle word into judgment, as it says in Matthew 12, 35 through 37. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. For the evil I have spoken, you have spoken. We deserve to be punished in hellfire for eternity. James 3.6, it says that our tongues can defile the whole body. It sets nature ablaze, and the flames that spread originate in hell. In this, this word, though, it's Gehenna. It's not Sheol or Hades, where is the place of the dead awaiting judgment. But it was the valley of the son of Hinnom, or Gehenna, outside the east walls of the Temple Mount. There's a large valley right before the Mount of Olives. And in that valley, it was a, a, a place where the rubbish and carcasses, and it was an unclean place that was always burning. It was like a rubbish tip. And you would find perhaps lepers, digging through the, uh, the rubbish there. It was a place where the, the screams of children were heard when they were offered to Molech. It was, it was hell on earth, and it became synonymous with hell because it was just an awful, unclean place. It's a place that if you said, where, hey, this is a delicious meal, where, were the, where was this meat sourced from? They go, oh, we got that from Gehenna. You would not want to eat that. And to think that that's where your words are originating from, from such an unclean, ugly, hideous place, would have been very sobering to the readers. It's like you wouldn't want to know where that meat or food came from if it was sourced from that rubbish tip in the valley of Hinnom, yet people were serving up perverse, unclean language before God all day. The source of fire was very significant to the Jews. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He appeared on Mount Sinai in a flame of fire. When Moses set up the tabernacle, when David set up that altar in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, when Elijah met with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, when Solomon dedicated the temple to God, in those cases, God answered their prayers and consumed the sacrifice with fire from heaven. 
And when that fire was consumed um, in the temple, when it consumed that sacrifice, they saved that fire. They kept it burning for the next offering and the next offering. So God was the divine source of that fire. It wasn't they had a flint and steel every time they needed to start a new fire. They kept the fire that came from God. God was the divine source. And therefore, it was the right fire to use for this next sacrifice or offering. No God-fearing priest would allow that fire to go out. And if they did, they would not go to the valley of the son of Hinnom to get fire for the offering. That would, be, that would just be an abomination, unthinkable. So James, he's teaching a tongue set on fire by hell. It corrupts our whole body. One who commits perjury in New South Wales, you can face, two, you can face a maximum of 10 years jail time. It's not just the tongue that's punished, but the whole body suffers. And James is making this point very strongly. James 3, verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. From ancient times, people bred and trained domesticated animals. They tamed some wild ones, birds, reptiles, even sea creatures have been tamed by people. I remember as a kid, I was always amazed to go to SeaWorld and see otters and dolphins. And like, how do they communicate to the walrus that he's supposed to spit water on people? Or the, the killer whales, that they can do these behaviors with a couple of clicks and whistles. How, how does that work? And it was just marvelous to to see and skilled people they can break a horse they can train dogs uh, to teach them to sniff out cash or drugs turns out they can even sniff cancer and low blood sugar they have large pouched rats that are able to uh, find landmines safely and you see man's skill and ingenuity in in training animals and we have a really good we have good motivation to want to tame the tongue but with man, no man can do it. We can't tame the tongue. It's full of poison. It's like this feral, wild beast that no matter what we do, it lashes out. It lies. It's deceitful. It only tells half the truth to protect itself rather than the whole truth with honesty. The God who formed the tongue, though, he can do more than tame the tongue. He can give us a new heart. He can give us a new mind. The God who created the languages of the world and allowed Balaam's donkey to speak sense to him enabled Jesus to speak gracious words in the synagogue in Luke 4. At some time, we're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way. We've all sinned by speaking. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It's like a bursts through barriers like a wild ox just plows through a fence or like a fox digs under it. it. It just undermines what's good and right and goes outside the boundaries of what we even know is right. Not only are tongues unruly, but they are poisonous. They pose a danger to others. Gossip that we've heard and we've spread, it spreads like a bushfire. And hurtful comments, they do damage to people on the inside. Having exposed that contradiction to have faith in God with partiality, 
or faith without works. James shows the contradiction of using our tongues to bless God one moment and then curse man who's made in the image of God the next. If we truly love God we have seen, can we rightly claim to love our brother? I mean, we, we haven't seen God, we claim to love him. How can we say that's true if we don't love the brother we have seen made in the image of God? Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. And he says, brethren, these things ought not to be. There's a lot of things that ought not to be, but there they are. And we do well to recognize these sinful inconsistencies in us, repent of our sin, and do what is right. We have not always treated others the way we would have liked to be treated. We have been graceless when God has given us grace we have freely received. We've remained bitter when we should have forgiven. We've spoken when we should have stayed silent, and we've stayed silent when we should have said something. We've schemed to deceive by telling only half the truth, and other times we have outright lied. Having been born again, we've been forgiven of sin, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, our speech ought to be guided by God's grace, love, and truth. Our words should be marked with blessing and not cursing. So there's the positive side. You might be embarrassed about your habit of cursing. How often do you bless? Do you bless the Lord? Do you bless other people? Are you an encourager? This ought not to be the case. Now, notice James does not say this cannot be the case. We can fall into this pattern of thinking it must be A or B. Like, if I habitually curse, does that mean I'm unsaved? No, that's not the point of what this passage is saying. And as soon as I say that, some of you might go, Woo, okay, then I don't need to worry about it. No, no. The whole point of James telling this is because it really matters. The way we speak, it's a reflection of our hearts before the Lord. It would be foolish to ignore this because God says it's important. Our lives ought to be free from the stench of hypocrisy revealed by our speech. And it's true. There are people who claim to have faith in Christ who do not. Their cursing could be evidence of an unregenerate heart. And if you're concerned that that's you, well, it's a very simple solution. Repent of your sin. Admit it. Acknowledge it before God. Repent. Trust in Christ. And be born again. Be cleansed forever. Be justified by faith in Him. James didn't write this to cast doubt on the reality of your faith because your tongue is like that ox that's just going over the, uh, the fence, fences, but to prompt believers to examine the words you say, do you bless? Do you curse? We don't bless God as much as we should. James 3 verse 11, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his words are done, works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The answer to those rhetorical questions, of course, are negative. Drinkable and undrinkable water do not flow from the same source. Figs do, fig trees do not bear olives, and uh, olive trees do uh, vines do not bear figs, and a tree is always going to bear fruit that agrees with its kind. God created flowers, trees, and all plants to reproduce after their own kind. And that fruit on the tree, it has seeds in it that will cause that tree to propagate as the same kind of tree. And so he uses that example to show without a doubt, no spring yields both 
salt water, and fresh. So then he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? You know a fig tree by the figs it produces? And that a spring that supplied fresh water yesterday, it's going to be fresh today. You don't uh, think that your tap is going to be uh, undrinkable one day, but safe to drink without testing it the next. If you're that wise to know these things, it's a very simple thing. Well, how about showing your wisdom by how you live your life, by the things you say? There were people who thought they were being overlooked for a teaching role because they have knowledge and insight. And he said, instead of clamoring to be a teacher, instead of leaving the fellowship to do your own thing to teach, you'll be best suited to demonstrate good conduct by the meekness of wisdom. Apollos, he's an example of that because he received the correction. He was instructed and he grew in grace. The one who is wise will be marked by good conduct, works done in the meekness of wisdom. And meekness, again, it's mildness, humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the prerequisite to have meekness before God and man. And we show wisdom by walking by faith in God by taking no thought for your life because your life is safe in his hands, knowing our future is uh, protected and guarded and prepared by him. So instead of being greedy for gain or seeking the spotlight or recognition, the meekness of wisdom is seen in taking the lowest place even if you're not promoted any higher. Jesus demonstrated the meekness of wisdom is in being the servant of all. Like olive trees bear olives, so all who are wise and understanding, we ought to demonstrate the meekness of wisdom in our lives. Consistently, Moses, he's one of the meekest men that ever lived, and when he was called out by some of his uh, countrymen for being proud and power-hungry and controlling, what did he do? It says he fell on his face before God. That is meekness. Verse 14 but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. We might assume that because we're born again, by default, we walk in wisdom. No, that is not the case. By default, we walk according to our sinful flesh. We walk according to the wisdom of the world that is foolishness with God. Bitter envy, self-seeking, it ought not to be in our hearts. But like we've said, there's some things that ought not to be that are. So bitterness, self-seeking, it can be within us. And the words you say, it's not the fault of your tongue, but they spring from the heart, the attitudes, the perspective. When we hear ourselves boasting, don't say this, like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying that. Or when you hold back, you say, I shouldn't even be thinking that. Instead, say, God, forgive me for my sin. Cleanse me from this wickedness that springs up and is evidenced by the things that I'm saying. I can't tame my tongue, but God, you can give me a new heart. That is the attitude we should have. Rather than just 
trying to quash the symptoms of the sin, let's deal with the source. Wouldn't it be silly to open your pantry and you see a bunch of mouse poo in there and you go, oh, disgusting. And you sanitize and you clean and you just close, close the cupboard doors and happily go about the day. But what you haven't done is actually get rid of the mice that are in there. You haven't, clo- you haven't seen the entry points, like how are they getting in? How are they getting out? Where are they getting food? You can't think that the problem's over just because you clean something up. And if you clean up just your mouth and you don't say rude things like you used to, but you're still thinking them, have you really fixed the problem? It's not a problem you can fix. It's what God does when we come to Him in repentance and we humble ourselves and we're guided by Him in walking by the Spirit. If we continue to justify our bitterness and our envy and selfishness and ambition, sinful words will emerge and poison others. This envy, this self-seeking, he, he describes it here as earthly, sensual, demonic. That word sensual, it means like a beast, a feral and wild animal that's driven by instinct rather than responsive to discipline and training. Grape vines produce grapes where there's envy and selfishness, confusion and every evil thing are there. Boasting and selfishness, they're evidence of bigger problems. And God would have us deal with this, believing that what's impossible for man, no man can tame the tongue, is possible for God. He saves souls. He raises the dead. He can change you. Will you be changed by him? So he's addressed the problem. Now he describes the meekness of wisdom. We have this great description. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. God's wisdom is straight from the source. It's pure. It's holy. It's peace-loving. It's peaceful. It's not combative or divisive. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's willing to listen to what others are saying and, and not headstrong or brash. How many times in God's wisdom did he yield to the requests of his people when he doesn't have to? At the same time, he accomplishes good beyond what they could have ever asked or dreamed. Like God, his wisdom is full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's without partiality. It's without favoritism. Wisdom is not a fruit of the Spirit, but it's received and walked in by the fear of God and faith in him. This is what Solomon urged his son in Proverbs 4, 5 through 8. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. God's wisdom is not something to attain and hang on the wall like a degree that shows our qualifications for something. But we seek God and his wisdom to use it, to get to work, to do his will, to know him. The final verse, it reads, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Through faith in Christ, we were once dead in sins. We've now been forgiven. The righteousness of God has been imputed or credited to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through Jesus. No believer has any right to brag about our knowledge or our wisdom or righteousness as if we're the source of it because it's Christ who has become wisdom and righteousness for us. Jesus laid down his life like a grain of wheat falls to the ground and is buried and it sprouts in new life. So we have been born again and raised to new life through Christ and faith in him. And he is our wisdom. So none of us can say that if we've been born again, that where is this wisdom? Well, it's in him. That's how we can walk in the meekness of wisdom because we are now made new and filled with him. So it's so encouraging, such a blessing that the evidence of God's wisdom and righteousness produced in us by his grace, it's to be sown in peace, gentleness, and meekness. Jesus, he was a peacemaker between man and God, between Jew and Gentile, and he's adopted us as God's children. And when we respond to, in obedience to God's chastening, what does it do? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Please turn in your Bibles, if you can, to Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and 8 and 10 for the sake of time. This hits on the main points, but feel free to read it all in context on your own. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1 and 2, and then verse 8 and 10. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. How about that? We were once darkness. Not just in darkness, but we were darkness. Now, uh, now we are light in the Lord. And so we've been made light. Walk in the light. Walk as children of light, because the fruit of the Spirit, it's all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So partiality, envy, boasting, selfishness, ambition, hypocrisy, they do not originate in God, but of this world and our flesh. And so our lives and words and works are to demonstrate the meekness of wisdom, because Jesus has become wisdom for us. Brothers and sisters, are the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart acceptable to the Lord. It says here, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We're gonna keep, we need to keep growing in our faith. We need to keep realizing that there are aspects of our lives, there are attitudes that are sinful that we ought to repent of. There are words that we say and just habitually, without thinking, we, we can be cursing, but that's, that ought not to be. And so let's agree with God's word. Let's humble ourselves before it, just like Apollos did when he was pulled aside. And he said, oh, wow, the grace of God. And he embraced it. He started living in it. He started helping others through it. And may the Lord help you with your tongues. And the book of James, it puts a spotlight on our words so that we would walk in wisdom. There's power in the tongue. There's power to promote peace or to poison, to speak gracious words or to boast against the truth, to justify a soul or condemn it. Having discovered what's acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, 
Let's choose to speak and walk in the meekness of wisdom. And let's be praying for one another. Let's be encouraging each other and walk in his ways so that he is glorified. Walk as light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your awesome love, for your mercy, for your grace, for your instruction and correction, that we're not like trained animals at, at a show that are just learn, learning to do behaviors or to, to pretend to be something that they're not, that, that really are doing unnatural things for the entertainment of others. Lord, we don't want to be like that, who are just angling for a treat. We want to be those who are your children, who walk in your ways because they love you, not because we're getting a treat from you, not because we're, we're getting a benefit of some kind. But I pray, Lord, that we would be those who walk in the meekness of wisdom as Jesus does, how he was the servant of all, how he listened to people, and Apollos, how he received instruction, and how there are, you have called some people to teach, and you've called us all to learn. You've called us all to grow. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to recognize when my speech is full of poison, when it's not uh, honest and trustworthy and true, and that you'd help us all, Father, to have your heart of love and grace and meekness towards others, that we would humble ourselves, that we would be exalted in due time, uh, loving you, serving you, be strong in, being strong in the Lord and the power of your might, and thank you that you are the faithful God. You are the one who does what is impossible. You can transform what no man can tame. And so we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your goodness to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.